Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Can you guess what we're talking about today? Not Kanye. Fashion. This headline in the Atlantic made me laugh. After the pandemic, the office dress code should never come back. Are fancy sweatpants here for good? So what are fancy sweatpants? I don't own any fancy sweatpants, do you? Today where we live, we're lightening it up and focusing on fashion in the era of Rona. Maybe there's some good things to come out of the last several months. Comfort? Flexibility? We want to hear from you. What are you wearing these days? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can also share a comment on our Facebook page and Twitter at Where We Live. Our first guest on the show today on Zoom, Robin Gavon, senior critic at large at the Washington Post, writing about politics, race, and the arts. She's also a longtime fashion writer. Robin, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. We heard from a lot of listeners on Twitter the other day, uh, Robin, when we posed the question about what they're wearing these days. Uh, Deb wrote, nice top, earrings, necklace, leggings, and fuzzy socks. Fuzzy socks (laughs) are a must. Robert tweeted, sweatpants, t-shirt, flannel shirt, slippers, hoodie as needed. And I love this one. Sabrina writes, high school sweatpants, college hoodie, and an afterglow, knowing that sweatpants and hoodies are still acceptable as an adult. (laughs) So Robin, I got to ask, I've never asked a guest on my show this before, but what are you wearing? (laughs) Well, I just came from a workout. So I actually am wearing a sweatshirt and (laughs) uh, a pair of sweatpants. (laughs) fancy sweatpants? (laughs) Uh, They're not terribly fancy, but I will say that I absolutely plan on changing into what I will describe as proper clothes. So have you been working from home these last several months? I have. I've been working from home since March. And so what are proper clothes these days versus when you went into the office? Well, you know, I joked with one of my colleagues that I was um, refraining from wearing leggings and and track pants all day. And I was at least putting on a pair of, you know, blue jeans or a pair of trousers with a waistband because I said, working from home and so close to my refrigerator, I need proper trousers to keep me honest. Sweatpants will lie to you about what you've been up to. I love it. So when we think about the last several months, uh, Robin, I mentioned that you you were a longtime fashion writer. You know, how has this pandemic changed the way we're dressing now? Not everybody can be working from home, but many of us are. Well, I think for people who are working from home, it's just given them a freedom to put comfort before everything. Um, I mean, I think that the, you know, the, the place where they're really dressing up is above the waist when they have to get on a video conference with um, their office or with coworkers, but it really has sort of unleashed 
um, the desire for ultimate comfort. Um, but that said, I mean, I, I've also uh, talked to and interviewed people who um, who don't want to just kind of blur the line between home and work, between uh, playtime, play clothes, and business clothes. And so even if they're not putting on, you know, a full suit and, you know, a skirt or heels or something like that, they're still sort of making an effort to, um, quote unquote, you know, dress a little bit uh, in more in a more polished manner when they're sitting down at work. That's, that's a really interesting point, you know, this idea that if you wear uh, business clothes or you dress uh, more formally for work, when you get home, you can just take that all off, get comfortable, and it's almost as if you're putting a barrier between your work and home life. But it seems like these days we're literally, it's there's no barrier. It's just we're going from working and we're dealing with home stuff, and it's just there's, it's just not a, a good situation to be in for, for many of us, uh, Robin. Yeah, you know, and I had a chance to speak to, you know, people who have um, returned to the office, if not full time, um, if just for a few uh, days a week. And what I found, I thought was really quite interesting and kind of speaks to the conundrum that the fashion industry itself is in, which is that there were some people who were really eager to, you know, pull out those clothes from the back of their closet and wear them again. I spoke to a woman who is a lawyer and also a magistrate judge who said that she really looked forward to being able to return, to put on her work clothes again and put on a pair of heels if only for a few hours because she missed that. And, you know, a realtor who said that even though he doesn't have to wear a suit when he goes into the office, um, he still does because it sort of preps his mind for um, you know, for the day ahead, and it puts him in the right mindset. So you know, and then of course there were others who sort of relished not having to be so formal, uh, but still, um, you know, did not wear the same sort of super relaxed uh, sweatpants to the office. Um, maybe they wore just a pair of you know comfortable trousers and a sweater. Ricky tweeted, comfy pants all the time if I'm not leaving the house and big, ugly socks. R business on top, party on the bottom for Zoom. I don't even know how to answer. <laughs> Especially after. <laughs> I don't even know how to respond to that. But thanks, Ricky, for sharing that with us. Uh, we're in this pandemic and so many of us wearing masks like we should. But uh, has that now become a fashion statement, Robin? Uh, yeah, a little bit for sure. Um, you know, I think people are trying to make the best of a, a terrible situation and, um, you know, make the wearing of masks not quite so painful. Um, and so I've, you know, we've seen, for instance, um, you know, Dr. Jill Biden wearing a mask that matched her dress. Um, you know, I absolutely have um, seen a, an incredible rise in just sort of the, the quality, the diversity, the uh, price point of masks that are available out there, you know, uh, fabric, uh, reusable uh, masks. I've seen sequent masks. I've seen, obviously, there have been masks that have been um, created to make um, a social point, a political point. But just from the standpoint of aesthetics, 
Um, you know, I, I always say that fashion finds a way. And if it's something that people are wearing, people always find a way to personalize it um, and to allow themselves to stand out. You can join our conversation as we talk about our new dress code in this pandemic. My guest today on Zoom, Robin Gavon, a senior critic at large at the Washington Post. You can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. What about the beauty industry, Robin? I was telling my producers that it's been months since I've had to buy lipstick. <laughs> and that was a, a normal thing for me to wear lipstick every day. And even my kids will respond uh, uh, early on in the pandemic, they, I wasn't wearing lipstick. Uh, <laughs> so I'm just wondering like how the beauty industry has responded with, I would imagine sales being low, at least with lipstick. Well, interestingly, um, during uh, the most intense period of, of the lockdown, um, the areas that saw um, sales growth uh, included uh, hair care, because obviously a lot of people uh, were missing being able to go to a professional salon. Um, and also things like skincare and self-care, so to speak. Um, but beauty influencers have gone uh, to YouTube and have been focused on helping people um, create a look uh, that's sort of above the nose. So it's been really focused on the eyes and mascara and eyeshadow, uh, things like that. Um, certainly, uh, you know, back to skincare. Um, there's been an interest in that because of what's been dubbed maskne, uh, the tendency to to break out when you're wearing a mask all day and perhaps getting a little, a little bit sweaty. But I do think that, um, you know, the era of sort of the virtual cocktail parties and things like that, um, people, you know, will put on lipstick for that as their sort of sole nod to, okay, I'm dressed up now for the party. So they put on the lipstick. I've also been known to leave the house and putting lipstick on and then putting my mask on because sometimes it can be a habit because we're not going to be wearing our mask, say, in the car and you never know who you're going to see in the neighborhood. <laughs> Again, this is where we live as we're talking about what we wear and how it has changed as many of us work from home. Robin Gavon with us and joining us now is Lisa Frydenlund, a knowledge advisor at SHRM. This is the Global HR Professional Association. Lisa, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So I don't want to treat you differently, Lisa. What are you wearing? <laughs> oh, goodness. Okay, so because I'm in California and it's a wee bit early right now, I'm oh, still no. in my very appropriate pajamas, <laughs> if I'm being honest. <laughs> So uh, once it is technically the workday for you, Lisa, yes. how has uh, your dress co code changed uh, in the last few months? Sadly, because I am very much about presentation and I do love to dress, I have scaled down. Um, I do have my regular outfits that do include sweatpants, I will say, but I also throw in a pair of Palazzo pants and even sometimes a pair of overalls, the sweat overalls that I found. So um, I also dress in layers just because I like to stay warm. So I, I try to dress it up a little bit, maybe with a, a poncho or something like that. Um, but the comfort level is definitely more so now than it used to be. Mm. When we think about dress codes, I mean, when did they really become the standard in uh, our society? 
Well, it's interesting. I was reading an article um, just the other day about when business casual became a thing. And it was back in 1992, it said. And I was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> I can't believe it was that long ago. And I remember being in the HR profession at that point and thinking, what does this mean now? And and I think it was business casual Friday is when I remember it really becoming a big deal. I And I think that that's when employers started really looking at, oh, how do we address this dress code now that we've got this business casual thing going on? Um, and so I think it really became more and more because trying to balance out what is appropriate, what our client base wants to see, what still makes it doable at work um, and still, quote, be professional, so to speak. That's interesting, the idea of what is uh, being professional. Uh, you know, I was thinking about like our workforce today. Uh, so mm -hmm. many of the so much of the workforce are are uh, people in the millennial generation. And mm -hmm. so have they been the ones that have kind of changed our idea of what uh, the workplace should look like? Uh, maybe when you're dressing more like yourself, like maybe that means more than having what quote unquote the professional look, Lisa, what do you think? Well, interestingly enough, because I do have a son in that category, and he just went in for a new job, and he was asking his mom, is this okay to wear? And he was trying to be at to dress in that more professional versus the let me be me. But it was... he he added in the flavor of who he was as well. So I think it gives us the opportunity to maybe sprinkle in a little bit more about how to bring yourself to work, but still take into consideration where you work, um, what the current, you know, what your dress code is, as well as, you know, who you are working or engaging with. So my thought is, is that we've added a little bit more to what may be available to us or, you know, what may have been way back then. When we think about business casual today, what does that mean? So a uh, nice shirt, but jeans? <laughs> I, it, well, jeans and <laughs> possibly if they're more tailored um, than you know, no, I don't ever see the the opportunity for the, what is it, the slashed and holy jeans as being an option. <laughs> More so the, um, the, the slacks or a casual, like the, what is it, the flowy dresses type of thing um, that you see more time, more like in the summertime. So again, just more of a, a, a less, no tie type of thing um, or jackets. Those, those have kind of been, you know, put to the wayside. Robin, what do you think when we think about business casual and then where we might be going uh, in 2021 once hopefully this pandemic's behind us? So what will it look like in, in the workplace? Well, I think it you know certainly will depend on the workplace. I mean, I'm here in Washington D.C. and um, you know I, I don't think that um, the the look of Capitol Hill is going to really change that much. Um, although we are seeing because there are because um, particularly Congress is becoming so much more diverse, um, there is a much wider array of, of styles and um, just sort of aesthetic dispositions. Um, but you know, just not exactly in defense of sweatpants, but just to sort of um, uh, expand the definition of them. You know, I, I think people have to recognize that, you know, the old idea of sort of um, slouchy, you know, cotton droopy sweatpants, um, really they exist, but um, the way that so many of them look now, I mean, they're really much more tailored, they're much more polished, 
Um, they come in beautiful fabrics from cashmere to silk. And you can, you know, and they're not cheap. I mean, you, they range in prices from, you know, sort of a mass market merchant all the way up to a Tom Ford, uh, you know, and suede sweatpants. So, um, you know, you can really still have that comfort um, and still also have a, a sense of luxury as well. Um, but I do think that um, it's likely that we'll see uh, tailoring loosen up a little bit for a long time. I mean, I remember writing a story about how men's trousers were getting tighter and tighter and tighter uh, because their suits were shrinking. And that was very much, you know, sort of the silhouette. And I think we'll definitely see that start to loosen up somewhat. We heard from uh, more listeners on Twitter. David writes, we've all seen the built-in mask turtleneck. That is the extreme. <laughs> I have not seen that, but that sounds pretty extreme. And then he writes, athleisure is the new normal, and wearing a button-up with joggers is the new golf polo and chinos. What do you think, <laughs> Lisa? <laughs> oh, my. Um, <laughs> so I haven't seen the mask turtleneck either, but uh, I know my mom would love that, that she loves turtlenecks. Uh, it's interesting. I, I'm i still working from home, and, and I do know that when I get back into the office, I do definitely want to be able to go back to kind of that more dressed up. It's interesting, as you may mention about working in D.C., The um, I work across the street from our capital here in Sacramento, and I've noticed that the dress code has not changed it is still a very formal uh, you know the suits and the ties and the the skirts and the even I think hosiery so I, I am I am encouraged that we have this desire to be more comfortable as we dress and I'm hoping that that continues forward um, appropriately so as we go back into the workforce or workplace so that people can be more comfortable if if that's the way and and I think you know, will productivity be enhanced possibly by more comfort in the workplace? That's my yeah. hope. <laughs> That's an interesting idea. And I was also thinking about when we think about uh, more serious issues in the workplace, like discrimination uh, mm -hmm. and uh, how a dress code pl may play into that. What are your thoughts on that, Lisa? Yes, absolutely. It is one thing that, for example, um, just with the, the protests that we've had, as well as even just wearing masks, these bring up new elements for HR professionals and employers to think about. And so I think being able to have the conversations around what does this mean now? How do we address it? Can we can we challenge what the current or prior dress codes have been so that we can be more aware, understanding, and, and hopefully more reflective um, about what we do going forward? Mm. Robin, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I, I would mention um, recently uh, an incoming uh, congresswoman, um, Cori Bush, had tweeted that um, she was sort of overwhelmed by the cost of creating a wardrobe that was quote unquote sort of appropriate for Congress. And, you know, one of the thing, the points that she raised was that it was very difficult to be, um, you know, a working class person going to Congress. Um, Alessandra Ocasio-Cortez mentioned mm -hmm. this as well, um, just how expensive it is. And I think if with a loosened dress code, um, with a dress code that isn't so focused on um, you know, strict, strictly tailored clothing, which is more expensive. 
I think it, it really does sort of help change the dynamic um, in, you know, in the halls of Congress. And if not opening them up to more people, just making it a slightly less stressful for those who, you know, come from a blue collar black background. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Robin Gavon with a senior critic at large at the Washington Post. Lisa Frydenlund was also here, knowledge advisor at SHRM. This is a global HR professional association. Lisa, before we let you get back, hopefully to some sleep, <laughs> waking up so early from California, what are some of the questions you're getting uh, from uh, other HR professionals, what, the way their companies are thinking about policies moving forward? Interestingly enough, and I'm thankful for it, we have not or I have not had any questions about what do I do about somebody who's not aside from the fact of somebody doesn't want to wear a mask um, or they can't wear a mask. And so it's a discussion around how to accommodate that concern. Um, Other than that, I think what I will probably see is once more and more folks are back in the workplace, how do we look to enhancing our dress code policy? How do we bring back folks who who have been working from home and integrate them back into that new, do we want to have the same dress code? Can we bring in the the more casual? So I'm hopeful that we have a, a... a new outlook on it. I look for the silver lining in all the, the the darkness that's happened over the course and hopefully we'll bring more comfort to the world. <laughs> Lisa, thank you for joining us today. We appreciate it. You're so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Again, this is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We'll continue talking about fashion after the break, including how the industry has adapted to consumer needs in the pandemic. How have your clothing and buying habits changed in the last several months? We want to hear from you. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Fast Company writes, over the last six months, COVID-19 has pummeled the $2.5 trillion global fashion industry. With nowhere to go and unemployment on the rise, consumers have lost interest in buying clothes and shoes. Does that describe you? What are you wearing these days? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Again, uh, we heard from a listener on Twitter. Uh, One writes, I've decided Wednesday is dress up day. So I pull stuff out of the quote office clothes section of the closet on Wednesday. Still no makeup though. I hear you. Uh, Robin Gavon's with the senior critic at large at the Washington Post. Uh, There's also the view the pandemic could reset the fashion industry for the better, including making decisions that are better for the planet. Uh, Robin, uh, talk us through uh, some of the, the Uh, themes and trends that you're hearing uh, in the fashion world about just uh, thinking about our social environmental commitments that companies might be taking now? Sure. When um, I would say probably starting in March, April, the industry really started having a bit of an existential crisis. Um, You know, everything had shut down. And uh, for years, uh, people in the industry had been complaining about the sheer volume of clothing that was being produced um, the speed at which um, newness had to come into the marketplace, the kind of stresses, the kind of stress that was putting on 
designers, on their staff, um, on the planet. And they really thought that this was an opportunity um, to sort of change the way that the industry operated um, because there was this sort of artificial pause. And there was a lot of conversation about just producing less product, um, having fewer sort of seasonal uh, drops in stores, um, stopping that kind of uh, fashion circus that had people going from one city to another city, uh, looking at runway shows uh, and creating these enormous carbon footprints. And I think all of those things were really um, topics that needed to be considered um, as well as the issue of inclusivity. Um, but I think with many things, um, you know, it's a huge issue. Some uh, ideas are starting to move forward. I'm definitely seeing some brands just producing smaller collections. Carolina Herrera talking about how they normally would have maybe 900 pieces in a collection and pretty much having that. Um, other companies are thinking of more digital ways to show their collections and work with buyers. But then there are still larger brands uh, like Chanel or Dior who have really sort of basically returned to form and really want to do um, the same, have the same sort of system up and running um, because a lot of jobs depend on having that system up and running. So I think there's a real tension. I do think that um, the possibility of change, though, is there. And that's a good thing. You know, I'd ask the question to listeners about if they're even going shopping these days. And when we think about consumer confidence and how that impacts mm -hmm. demand, are we thinking that are we seeing these brands thinking about making less expensive clothes? It really depends on the brand. You know, for those that are really in the luxury sector, uh, for them, you know, their customers are continuing to shop. And many of them, you know, there have been cases where perhaps they've bought less, but they have bought more expensive items. Um, you know, the online retailer, uh, Moda Operandi, mentioned um, that one of their top sellers was something like a $7,000 lavishly embroidered Miu Miu miniskirt. Um, so they're buying things that are special to them and things that they might keep in their closet almost as heirlooms. Um, on the other hand, um, you know, I was speaking to the president of Shopify, which is one of the largest um, retail um, platforms, and they've seen their business, you know, grow up some 200% since the pandemic began. And that's because a lot of uh, medium and large and small businesses um, that had brick and mortar uh, stores are taking their uh, business online and reaching out to customers wherever they may be. Um, so I'm not sure that um, prices are going down, but I do think retailers are reaching out to customers wherever they can find them in, in new ways. Mm. I wanted to bring into the discussion now uh, Kathleen, Grievers, uh, Kathleen Grievers, Director of Education for Fashion Revolution USA. This is an NGO working to educate and engage consumers about who makes our clothes. Kathleen, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me. 
I'd love to hear your thoughts on how this pandemic has, even before the pandemic, people have been thinking about uh, sustainability. Uh, I know we've done it. We did a show uh, before about fast fashion and the consequences. And so I'm wondering, as we're in this pandemic now, I've, I, I've lost count which month of <laughs> that we're in. But when we think about how uh, consumers, how companies are thinking about ways our clothes are made and sourced, uh, tell us about your, your what you're hearing. Yeah. Um, well, I have to say, I love I love Robin's quote when she said, "Fashion finds a way," and and I do think it does find a way. And I think that what we're seeing is people are slowing down, and we had this this roadblock right of our normal consumer behavior, and we've been able to step back for a minute and take a look into our closets and take a look to what we have, and knowing that maybe the 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 need to go and and find this, you know, one shirt in a matter of five minutes that you usually have to go shopping wasn't available. So we really had to take inventory. And I think that's a lot of what we're trying to express within Fashion Revolution's manifesto of of slow down and, and, you know, understand where your clothes are coming from and also understand what you already have. So much of our lives are online now. And so uh, given what you just shared with us, Kathleen, how are consumers thinking about when it's time to buy something? You know, what's a a, a responsible way to do it? That's a great question. Um, I, I think that, you know, what we try to offer is the idea that every piece of clothing that you touch, somebody else's hands had touched also. And to have that respect of, okay, somebody made this. This wasn't a a machine just sewing this. So whatever store you go into, there's somebody behind that clothing that you're looking at. So I think just a mind shift of somebody made this clothing. And and then to kind of think about, all right, if someone made a clothing, where was it made? How were those um, workers treated? And it depends on your own, you know, ability to take in this information and where you are. So I think step by step, you can evolve how how you purchase and where you purchase and, and have that thought process. Mm. Do you see your designers taking more steps to become more sustainable or is there greenwashing? Can you explain that term? Mm, that's a great one. So, yeah, Robin, I think you're laughing. Too. <laughs> yeah, <I am. laughs> um, yeah, there is greenwashing um, because, you know, and I say this even to the students that I teach, I say, if you're producing something, you're adding more to what we have in the environment, period. So is is any clothing produced sustainable? No, you can't put another item on the shelf and call it sustainable. It's not possible. So that's the biggest greenwashing there. And it's not to say that everyone's going to stop buying clothing. It's not going to happen. But just to understand that, um, you know, the, the FTC green guide is one that I also teach from. And it, it talks about all the different marketing aspects of of greenwashing. And that even that guide hasn't been updated since 2012. So um, we have a lot of work to do in having the consumer be more educated in in what their clothing is. You know, is it is it organic? What does organic mean? Is it, um, you know, eco-friendly? What does that mean? 
So I think that we do have a lot of work to do within the, the terminology of, of what greenwashing is. And, and we have, you know, these steps to take that the education of um, students coming through design schools. And I think that has gotten, honestly, that's the silver lining in my aspect of COVID is that when the students all had to mobilize home, they went through a lot of you know emotional conflict, but they also had to resource exactly what they had in their homes at their at that time. So some students didn't have sewing machines and you know all the materials that they had available at an arm arm's reach in their studios of their schools. They now had to resource, and I think even that mind sh shift for students. They've come out with amazing collections, and they are beautifully made and. It's almost that the, the competition of being in a studio with another student slowed down. So their, their thought process on what they're making slowed down. And I love that aspect. So I think designers are looking, you know, in, in a way to kind of have this understanding of, first of all, your clothes need to be made to, to last. And the design, the materials, the 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 story behind the making of the clothes, that needs to come out deeper. So I think mm -hmm. those are the aspects that's happening with designers from, from my perspective. Robin Gavon, again, senior critic at large at the Washington Post. What's your take? I know you, you covered uh, what New York Fashion Week was in September and how uh, designers have had to change and adapt. Uh, how do you respond to what Kathleen shared? I, I agree with it all. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think part of the issue is that a lot of the terms that people use, whether it's eco-friendly, sustainable, uh, environmentally friendly, I mean, they don't really have, I haven't heard a, a clear definition, uh, a standard definition for them. And so a lot of companies use those terms um, and they don't really have very much meaning. And what I've also found is that whenever I've tried to report on the issue of sustainability, it feels a little bit like just plummeting down a rabbit hole because, um, you know, as soon as you start talking about, um, you know, organic fabrics, then you start asking, well, is it better to use an organic cotton that comes, you know, that's locally sourced or is it better to use one, um, you know, that comes from, a, a conventional cotton that, um, you know, has better labor practices. I mean, you're constantly sort of weighing all of these different aspects. And I think most consumers just want to shop as easily as possible. They don't want to have to think through a moral conundrum in order to buy, uh, you know, a, a pair of trousers. So it really is incumbent, I think, on the industry to um, to make these kinds of changes. But I also think that, um, you know, customers really have to uh, break themselves of the habit of just wanting to buy more and being willing to buy less and perhaps pay a little bit more for what they're buying. Um, one of the nice things that I think has come out of everything that the industry has been going through is for instance, you know, when fabrics became more challenging to source from, um, you know, mills thousands of miles away, um, you saw designers deciding to use fabric, uh, you know, remnants that they already had 
to produce collections. And no, they couldn't produce as much, but then each of those pieces became that much more special and they were you know, using fabric that already existed. Mm. Uh, again, uh, with us as well is Kathleen Grievers, Director of Education for Fashion Revolution USA. What about uh, secondhand clothes? Is that something that people are still interested, even though when we think about the pandemic, uh, people are always thinking about wanting things that are clean and sterile, and there might be this uh, impression maybe secondhand isn't a good idea. Yeah, I think... Um... I think that's a good point because we, you know, one of one of the events that we do during Fashion Revolution Week, um, which is in April in, in solidarity with what happened in Rana Plaza, which is a large clothing factory that collapsed. And um, one of the things we do during this week of, of honoring what happened in Rana Plaza is we, we do all these events. And one of the events is a clothing swap. So we have student ambassadors from you know, all different college campuses from all over our nation, um, as well as all the other countries that are also part of Fashion Revolution. And and the clothing swaps were canceled because we didn't know how the virus was spread and we wanted to contain it. Um, but I think that secondhand stores are still on the uprise. I think that um, online secondhand, like ThreadUp, um, has been very popular, and especially when there was a, a, a business partnership with them and, and Rent the Runway. And I think that even, you know, locally with um, people not wanting to go into stores, they're, they're swapping clothes with neighbors a little bit more. So I think that secondhand and, you know, the swapping idea is, is still working. And I think it's still going to continue to grow because people also want to be able to tell the story of, hey, you know, my neighbor gave me this shirt and, you know, I love it. And, or I found this amazing Dior dress on ThreadUp or Poshmark and, you know, got it for this amount of money. And so I think that that whole idea is still strong. Mm, I love that idea of neighbors swapping clothes. That's a great <laughs> idea. As long as you get along with your neighbors. And <laughs> <laughs> Um, Robin, I, we got a tweet from Christine that writes, she's a former DC resident. She's followed you for years. Uh, she conducts professional credibility training and she says image is still important, even on Zoom, especially when your audience does not know you. And I think that's an important point yeah. uh, to stress. But I, you know, I, I have to go back to what this means for uh, the fashion industry. We know a lot of people and sectors are hurting financially. And so I'm wondering from your perspective, uh, you know, what are the what companies are the ones that are going to be okay in in the middle of of next year versus ones that unfortunately won't be able to keep going? Yeah, you know it's it's hard it's hard to know because you know a lot of these companies are, are private and you don't really uh, have a clear sense of how well financed they are. But in general, I would say that the larger corporate you know corporately owned brands. Um, you know, the, the big prestige luxury houses, I think will be fine. Um, in part, that's because their market is so uh, broad, but also because, um, you know, most of them are quite vertical in that, you know, they, they own their own production, they own their own outlets. And so they're in much greater control of their destiny. Um, I, I think the smaller brands may in some ways be fairly well positioned because they are nimble and because they can uh, much more easily reinvent themselves 
um, and typically have a much stronger relationship with their customers. The ones that sort of worry me are those sort of mid mid-sized brands, the ones that often um, are very much uh, at the mercy of department stores. Um, and when department stores are pressed, um, the people who feel uh, the pain first tend to be um, their vendors. Um, and so those are the ones that I think will have the greatest struggles um, because they're, you know, to use a cliche, they're, they're not too big to fail um, and they're not small enough um, that they can uh, very easily be propped up with, a, you know, a modest uh, cash loan. Um, but I, I think one thing that can be helpful, though, is, you know, the way that people responded to the struggles in the restaurant world and in the food industry. Um, I think they did so because there was a real sense of connection to neighborhood restaurants or places that um, were special. And I think if the fashion industry it does better at creating those kinds of connections, I think that their customers might be um, might feel a greater uh, sense of, uh, of urgency in wanting to support um, smaller and local brands. Mm. Robin Gavon, again, senior critic at large at the Washington Post. It's been a pleasure to talk with you, Robin. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I also want to thank Kathleen Grievers, Director of Education for Fashion Revolution USA. Kathleen, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Coming up after the break, did you ever watch Say Yes to the Dress? Getting a wedding dress can be a big deal, but how are future brides dealing with restrictions in the pandemic? We talked to a Connecticut boutique owner after the break. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're doing a show on gratitude next week. Despite this being a chaotic and hard year, we want to know what you're thankful for this year. You can send us a note or a voice memo at where we live at ctpublic.org. You can call us and leave a message, 860-275-7221. And we may feature you on the show. That's next Tuesday. Now, how are some sectors of the fashion industry doing, like wedding dress boutiques? Joining us now on Zoom, Megan Dumaine, owner of Wedding Embassy in Watertown, Connecticut. Megan, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I understand you've worked in the wedding industry for, gosh, more than 15 years. And tell us about uh, when you opened up your bridal shop in Connecticut. How was business? So I opened up my bridal shop in uh, 2006. And it was a very small business then and right before the recession. And so I really didn't get up and going um, in a in a financially positive way until after um, the 2008 recession, and so um, from that point on, it's um, it's moved nicely and it's been um, really successful and we've grown, which is great. But we started at a time that was also a little tumultuous, so it this time feels a little like that time. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, it's uh, it's been quite the year. It's hard to be a small business owner. So tell us what it was like to deal with uh, COVID uh, in the spring and all the restrictions. How did you still help customers find the wedding dress of their dreams? Yeah, so um, we, like, like most of the other shops in Connecticut, um, shut down for about two months. So um, it was... It was a time where we had to make adjustments really quickly and figure out how we were still going to service our existing customers, find a way to get to new customers, um, because we didn't know how we were going to come out of this, if people were still going to get married, if we were going to be postponing a lot of things. Um, so a lot of shops across the state made changes in the way that they sold to brides. So some shops... Um, went into online sales and did virtual appointments, which consisted of maybe trying on dresses over Zoom uh, for their customers to see in real life, I say with air quotes, uh, so that they could better understand the fit and purchase something online. Um, other shops like ourselves, we did a little bit of virtual shopping, but we also just spent those two months reaching out to our customers checking in with people who have purchased. And we really focused on uh, making sure our existing brides were comfortable and knew that we were gonna be for them, be here for them mm -hmm. moving forward. So we focused a little bit more on the people that we already um, had a relationship with and had a sale with um, mm. versus really spending time seeking out new sales. Mm. And given the restrictions, like finding ways that, that uh, women could try on dresses uh, safely? <laughs> yeah, we um, we were lucky enough. There's um, another shop in Connecticut called the White Dress by the Shore. And the owner of that shop, um, Beth Chapman, was wonderful advocating for shops to continue to be able to let their brides try on dresses once we reopened. Um, even now, regular retail isn't allowing people to try on. And with our stores, that's the biggest draw. You know, you're there to try on and to experience wedding gown shopping. Um, and so, now, oh, go ahead. Uh, we know that people have still been able to have weddings, maybe not uh, the wedding that they always dreamed of, but smaller right. weddings. And I understand you even have bridal masks. We do. Um, you know, you have to be ready for every circumstance. So um, our seamstresses have been really wonderful. And so they've been creating masks out of the remnants of everyone's dresses so that they can be fashionable and match while getting married in a COVID ceremony. Uh, whether it's small or a little bit larger. Now, we just have a couple minutes left, uh, but uh, when I think about uh, people looking to the future, when you think about your business and, and what uh, people are looking to buy in the future, you know, what does it look like for you? That the, we're, um, we're a moderately priced store. And while we're a small business, I would say in Connecticut, we're a medium-sized boutique. And so we're seeing that people are excited to get back into the shop and to shop, but we're seeing that budgets are a little bit lower. People are a little bit more hesitant to purchase just because plans are still up in the air for 2021. So we're assuming once um, things, maybe a vaccine um, gets out there and moving, that people will be excited to get back into having large weddings. But I do think there's gonna be a little restraint in budget 
and maybe a little bit more um, thoughtfulness when purchasing. Maybe the dress will be flexible for a ceremony inside or outside. Maybe it'll be okay for a backyard and a ballroom. You know, so I think people are just trying to get um, as much flexibility as they can out of their purchase. I liked what you told our producer, Tess, that uh, even anniversary parties, people want to get a dress to celebrate when we can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of people, you know, they're having their mini ceremony now in a backyard with close friends and family. But then that one year anniversary party, that is going to be the knockout party, you know, so the dress is being saved for those more exciting events down the road. Here's hoping for a better 2021. Uh, Megan Dumain, thank you so much, owner of Wedding Embassy in Watertown, Connecticut. We're glad that you're finding a way uh, through this pandemic, and uh, we hope to talk with you again when we're when we're done. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> Today's show was produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Uh, coming up tomorrow, we're going to talk about the last fluent speaker of the Mohegan language, Flying Bird, Fidelia Fielding. She preserved her linguistic heritage in diaries. Those diaries are back with the Mohegan Nation. We'll talk about that tomorrow. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.